Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with Michael Seymour. Michael, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm Michael Seymour, working as the Director of Performance Marketing and Analytics at Higginbotham. We are an insurance and financial services company. What is your background, and how did you get to your current role? So that's kind of an interesting story. Um, graduated into the peak of the 2008 financial crisis in 2010 with a degree in marketing and management from Texas Tech. Uh, so after graduation, my job prospects weren't looking very good, was actually interviewing against, uh, you know, kind of seasoned professionals for entry-level jobs, uh, realized that I would probably be better off looking at starting something on my own. Uh, A buddy of mine and I had a little money saved up, so we decided to start a commercial power washing business. Uh, We quickly realized with that business that we would need customers to keep the business solvent. (laughs) So I took it upon myself to really dive into digital marketing, local optimization, and try to get some visibility for our business. Uh, set up a website, social profiles, uh, worked tirelessly for around nine months, I'd say, before I really started to see kind of any fruit from that labor. Uh, Fast forward about a year from then, and we were ranking number one on Google for almost any keyword that we would want. And around 60% of our total business was coming by way of inbound leads. So having a few other friends with businesses at the time, I was kind of excited to share what I had learned, uh, ended up falling into some kind of, uh, I don't know if you want to call them consulting agreements, but you know, just kind of helping people out with their local marketing and uh, got some really good results for them as well. I eventually figured out that I liked marketing a lot more than I liked running a power washing business. So I broke out into consulting full-time around 2014. Uh, for the next few years, kind of bounced around uh, several organizations, ranging from other blue-collar businesses to some nonprofits to a luxury travel company. I also helped stand up a media company, uh, kind of learned a lot about media and production there. Uh, decided kind of at the end of that run that I kind of wanted to move upstream and consult with bigger businesses. So I started a graduate program at the University of Florida in global strategic communications, thinking that would kind of open those doors. Um, After graduating that program in 2018, quickly realized that an advanced degree wasn't really going to get me the clients that I wanted. So I turned my attention to finding a corporate marketing job at a big company, which kind of tended to be the thing I was hearing in a lot of these uh, conversations I was having with the enterprise level clients. You know, everybody kind of wants someone that's already done it on their level in-house. So um, kind of serendipitously found Higginbotham, um, guy I'd met at South by Southwest uh, that worked for a marketing company they had hired, uh, had mentioned me when they were looking for a marketing director to do the strategy for a kind of research and development concept they had underway, uh, kind of an insure tech thing. If you're familiar with financial services, essentially direct to consumer. I did that for about a year, had some decent success. The project ended up getting shelled for other reasons, and I was kind of pivoted into my current role, which is the Director of Performance Marketing and Analytics. I am tasked with developing the marketing content, social media, and analytics strategy for our 70-plus offices nationwide today. Ironically, throughout this process, I've come to love working on the corporate side as well. Uh, I mean, it's kind of essentially similar work on a day-to-day basis to my consulting, but a little more consistent because I know I'm getting a salary every month. Um, so I'm kind of looking forward to maybe moving forward with a hybrid approach, you know, keeping a long and healthy career at Hickmotham and 
doing my consulting on the side. Before we continue, here's a quick word from our sponsor, Adverity. Marketing is a thankless task. You go through all the trouble of setting up your campaigns, perfecting your messaging, and targeting your customers. But when it comes to revenue, who gets all the credit? That's right, sales. Well, it doesn't need to be this way. Adverity is the marketing data analytics platform that lets you easily monitor performance and link it to actual revenue in your company. What's more, the advanced analytics module will also give you predictive insights into how best to adjust your campaign spend based on the best ROI. Go to info.adverity.com mxa for a free demo. Again, that's info.adverity.com mxa for a free demo. And now, back to the podcast. So if you could do it over again, would you have started in corporate rather than starting kind of on your own and then moving into corporate later? So that's a great question. I would say that if I graduated during another time, I probably would have gone that path naturally. Um, Looking at what I was looking at in 2010, I don't know that that would have been very fruitful for me. My prospects weren't great. And I feel like a lot of times when you kind of join as a junior level marketing employee at a big organization, it's kind of a long climb to the top. So I don't think that I would have got to where I got today any faster um, doing it that way. And I do actually credit a lot of my entrepreneurial experience to kind of where I ended up today. So I guess long story short, probably no, probably I would still do it the same way. Would you say that the economy right now is similar to in 2010 from your experience? That's tough to say. So, I mean, I would say the leading indicators are very similar. A lot of people look at the yield curve and say, you know, this is how we know we're going to go into a recession. I don't know enough about finance to really know definitively, but I would say that I've noticed some similar indicators in my own personal life, um, especially in the real estate market. It seems like, you know, has basically hit a wall. I'm seeing a lot of houses in my neighborhood, which is a very popular neighborhood, uh, you know, staying on the market for three, six months, whereas six months ago, a good house wouldn't last a day. You work in performance marketing, so I definitely want to talk about a few of the different areas um, and maybe starting with SEO. What it, Can you define SEO from a high level? What value does it bring to the business? How does it work? Sure. So, I mean, SEO at a very high level is essentially just optimizing content to the algorithm of whatever search engine you're trying to create visibility for. I mean, traditionally, or most typically people would optimize for Google. Um, The benefit of doing that is creating visibility or kind of organic discovery potential uh, for the business. I think SEO is one of those disciplines that seems very complicated from the outside looking in, but realistically, it's just a few key activities that are executed consistently. What's a, what's a good example of like some SEO optimization you would do on a website? Sure. Yeah. So to break it down, I mean, I would say there's kind of three stages, right? You've got your kind of development stage where you build the infrastructure or the kind of foundation. That's going to be your website, your social profiles, uh, Google business profile. You're going to want to also develop some optimized content uh, as far as your cornerstone pages, you know, service pages, so on and so forth. I like to use a research tool for ideation. Uh, AREFs is my preference. Some people use Moe's or other tools basically to find opportunities. Uh, Then you'll also want to use kind of an optimization tool that will help you optimize for those keyword opportunities. Uh, We use Surfer SEO, but there's a number of other options there. 
basically once you have the website live and you make sure that it's responsive, it's fast loading, and you have a good user experience with optimized content, you really just got to get to work creating content. So, I mean, using those same tools, making sure that you're validating concept ideas and keywords through, you know, a big data aggregator that can kind of take the pulse of the market is very key. You don't want to develop content that nobody's searching for. And then you want to make sure that you're obviously optimizing to whatever the algorithm flavor of the month is. Uh, usually it doesn't really shift too much. I mean, just making it high quality, aligning it with user intent. But using those optimization tools is helpful because, you know, they'll kind of take a benchmark average across all the pages that are ranking for what you're trying to rank for and give you some really actionable guidelines when you're developing that content. Um, beyond that, you know, if you've kind of done all the things right, you're going to start seeing keywords rank. You'll need to focus on some kind of secondary strategies, i.e. building backlinks, social signals, uh, doing some PR, essentially kind of validating that you are an authority in your space. Um, I will add a caveat there that you don't necessarily need to build backlinks to rank. Um, I think it was a guy by the name of Brian Dean came up with a strategy called the skyscraper uh, blog strategy. And essentially, I've, I've used this with a lot of success in the past, but if you write a piece of content that is 10 times better than anything else that exists on a topic, you're really likely to get on the first page of Google without ever building a link. And what defines really good quality content? I would say it's, it's two things, right? It, one is alignment with user intent. Uh, Google is really good at kind of ascertaining what a person is looking for, and they're trying to serve content that's relevant for that search. So whether it's someone in an informational stage or a transactional stage, they want to try to align the content with the search intent. So that's one thing that's really big. Uh, the second thing would be that it's proprietary and driven by data. So using these optimization tools that kind of look across the board at what other people are doing and then kind of making an enhanced version of what already exists is kind of the key to success in my opinion. So with, uh, with this podcast episode, what would be the best way to improve the SEO? So we like to approach podcast optimization through the lens of just multi-channel distribution. Uh, we record all of our podcasts and make them into YouTube videos. Um, so we'll publish the podcast on YouTube. We'll create a number of pieces of micro content to use on social media, and then we'll syndicate using uh, Anchor FM which puts it on all, you know, Spotify, Apple Music, all the kind of regular aggregators you would expect. Um, we have found that when you do that, you can kind of create visibility from the podcast in a lot of different ways uh, that kind of increase your viewership without really needing to look at actual optimization in kind of the audio world. To be frank, I've never really optimized just the audio for search. But I will say that with the YouTube side of it, you know, having a transcript that is accurate, ideally that also includes some of the keywords for the subject matter that you're trying to rank would be advantageous for you. What about pulling out segments of a podcast? Do you ever do that? Absolutely. So yeah, we're really big on the micro content. Uh, I think it was like Gary Vaynerchuk that kind of owned the idea of the upside down content pyramid. But we take a long form piece of content like a podcast and we try to get 20 to 30 pieces of content from that long form. And so by extracting kind of the highlights, you can not only drum up interest in the full episode by kind of giving people teasers, but you can also create kind of a number of touch points that are sending those signals back to wherever your end destination is that, you know, this is contextually relevant to whatever people are searching for. So there was this criticism I read recently uh, about 
real like marketing analytics type of work uh, not being quote unquote real marketing because it's really different than traditional marketing in the sense that there's a lot of, you know, if you go back, you know, 20 or 30 years, we just didn't have analytics driven marketing. And so now we're, we're almost reinventing marketing in many ways. And from my perspective, how do you respond to that kind of concept that, that it's not really like traditional marketing anymore. It's really changing, uh, performance marketing specifically is, is changing what marketing is. Yeah, I would agree wholeheartedly with that statement, but I would add that, I mean, it seems like we're kind of having a resurgence back to kind of a middle ground. So while to your point, I mean, the kind of quantitative data wasn't really as available. And I mean, when you're looking at the channels that traditionally were used in the past, there's really no way to get a really good quantitative measurement of performance. You know, when you're running a billboard outside of just seeing lift in the geography that you were running that billboard. And now with kind of the digital frontier, you can get very granular with performance measurement, but I would say a lot of people kind of go too far down that that path where you know they're thinking only data driven, only performance, only measuring by leads and revenue generation where they really need to also consider brand awareness and just kind of old school marketing as part of their mix because at the end of the day you can very easily hit a plateau with digital if you're not also focusing on some traditional channels. It's not to say that I would advise someone to lean heavily into traditional, but I think it's something that you should still consider today. What would you say are some underrated tactics in marketing? Um, in my opinion, the most powerful and under leveraged tactic in marketing is probably using corporate social responsibility coupled with PR. So, I mean, a lot of companies do philanthropy, right? They go out and they write a big check or they get involved with some cause that, you know, makes everybody feel good, but they, they don't really create visibility for the cause. You know, they're just out here posting a picture of them dropping off a check and they don't spend time getting people aware of, of what the cause is or, or how it makes impact. So I think, you know, working with public relations and really trying to get, promote the causes that you support rather than the actual support itself. Um, that's a really good way to create emotional alignment with prospective customers in a way that like some products can, but most products can't like reach a consumer on that level. So going back to measurement, um, one of the tactics I've worked on is paid search. And I want to ask how you balance attribution with tactics like paid search, which are oftentimes attaching to inevitable customer journeys. And then there's other tactics that are actually pushing customers towards a purchase, but are not really measured well, or some some, tac some touch points that you just can't measure that a customer has that really do influence the buying decision. So how do you, how do you balance not really having a full uh, view of all the customer touch points and having some tactics that seem to really attract a lot of the uh, activity, but don't necessarily drive it? That's a really good question. And kind of one that rings close to home for me because at Higginbotham, we don't actually have a traditional CRM. So we have an agency management system that in a lot of ways functions like a CRM, but it's not very agnostic. So, I mean, like a lot of the platforms that we're working on the marketing side in don't really talk well to the, um, to the customer database, if you will. So we've always kind of been in the world at my current position where 
we had to kind of look a little more from a 10,000 foot view. So like we know best practice, you know, we know tactics that have worked in the past and we kind of try to throw things at the wall and see if they stick, but we measure more by kind of overall impact. And then we basically, if we're not seeing what we want, we kind of have to hypothesize um, much in the way that a traditional marketer would have, you know, 20 years ago before kind of the advent of, of big data. I mean, it's not to say that like within digital disciplines that we don't look at analytics, like we're obviously looking at social analytics very closely and just looking how we're performing on platform, how, how much click through we're getting to website. I live in Google analytics every day, you know, we're tracking using SEM rush and AREFs to see organically how we're doing. Um, but I mean, I would say outside of ideation and using research tools to kind of benchmark our strategy against competition, we're not really looking at the multi-touch attribution model very much at Higginbotham. You said you spend time in GA, Google Analytics. What are some of the uh, different kinds of metrics that you look at? So the most important metric, I mean, especially when it comes down to executive reporting or kind of defining success is opportunities generated. So we track form fills and then we try to tie those back to revenue using kind of a cobbled together model that we have uh, built in Snowflake. But from the day to day, I mean, obviously we're looking at traffic, you know, pages per session. I like to look at the user signals as far as like bounce rate to really ascertain whether or not the content is serving the purposes of the user. And then beyond that, you know, just kind of looking at journeys to conversion or, you know, at least marketing side conversion of the form fill saying, you know, what was the piece of content that brought them into our funnel and what was the last piece of content that they consumed before they converted. And if you're in a, if somebody's in a revenue focused organization, specifically a, re a revenue focused marketing organization, how, how is, how does the communication differ? How do the goals differ um, between marketing teams when some are focusing on, like you said, form filling out and opportunity generation and others are focused on revenue? So for us, we kind of, we do focus primarily on opportunity generation and revenue, but we also understand the importance of brand awareness. We do a lot of mergers and acquisitions. Uh, we actually kind of have like a corporate strategy to be coast to coast, uh, basically in all of the Southern United States. And so, I mean, there's kind of an importance placed in the executive level on you know, just people seeing our name. We do a lot of traditional placements with that objective. We also understand that, you know, social impressions, search impressions, I mean, those are essentially the same as an impression that you would get on a billboard or a magazine ad. So we, we report on that as well. But like at the end of the day, to your point, we are a revenue-driven organization when we're measuring performance. So, I mean, we we like to show okay here's all the opportunities that we generated by ways of calls or forms coming coming inbound uh but we also like to try to tie that to revenue as much as possible by searching uh, all the data points that we have on our submission side against what we have in the customer relationship database is there ever a fight for attribution between the sales and the marketing organizations we've been pretty lucky that our sales team I guess kind of has a, a shared perspective of of the value that we're creating. I mean, we don't take from the salespeople as far as like a commission model. So like we're essentially just kind of teeing them up with opportunities that they get paid for and then we're salaried. So there's no real reason to 
to fight about it, I guess, if you will. But I could see it being a little more of a point of contention if, you know, we were getting paid on a, you know, lead by lead basis or, you know, deal by deal basis. Yeah, I want to I want to ask about something that probably does happen. I, I haven't really asked about this before, but are there any ways to artificially, you know, boost marketing numbers do you does that do you think that ever happens um absolutely yeah can you talk through some of those tactics that that companies might use or maybe vendors might use when they're doing marketing on on behalf of a company oh yeah i mean i've seen a ton of it in my client work so i mean probably the most common one is you know buying followers on social media and you know you can also buy essentially traffic on google I don't know if you've ever, you know, trolled around on a marketing forum long enough, but there's a lot of people selling, you know, basically bot traffic. So, I mean, depending on where you're reporting, you know, if, if you're reporting in a similar way to us, I would say the easiest way to juice up your numbers is just to buy bot traffic on both social and, and search. But as far as, you know, faking revenue, I don't know that that's possible. <laughs> So I think if we're if we're measuring by the stick of how much revenue you're generating, I don't I don't know of any tactic. I would say that like a lot of stakeholders that are kind of getting those presentations don't really know the intricacy of the art. So they're just kind of trusting the person who's doing the presentation. I mean, I've personally sat in on some, you know, consultant presentations for clients that I was retained with um, that they were creating presentations with with made up metrics and made up graphs, you know, basically representing their own version of, of the analytics in a way that kind of, you know, put them in the best light. So one example was uh, this guy that I had basically inherited on this project. He would do this quarterly reporting where he would, you know, show them the traffic that he had created, but rather than graph like, you know, quarter over quarter performance, he would just start the quarter at zero and end the quarter at whatever number of traffic uh, or whatever you know number of visits they had at the end of the quarter. So he would always have a line heading in the right direction, but when you actually looked at it in Google Analytics, the trend line was flat for years. So just creative reporting, you know, like structuring a graph in a way that makes the line go in the right direction is, is a tactic I've seen, but more often than that, just kind of buying engagement or buying you know, impressions. In your role, do you ever have to be really critical of the analytics that come to you? How do you try to sniff out numbers that maybe don't make sense? So at Higginbotham, I don't have to because I have full control over the contractors that we work with. And if I see any of that, I mean, that's pretty much the end of the relationship. Um, with some of my consulting clients, uh, oftentimes it ends up with a tough conversation, right? Because I mean, I'll come in kind of after the legacy person has already been doing work for a while, whether they're kind of in-house or you know, another consultant. Um, I mean, my responsibility coming in in a strategic role is, you know, bettering the client's position. And, you know, if, if they have someone on the payroll that is, you know, kind of pumping up the numbers or, you know, trying to manipulate the data in a way that makes them look good, even when they're not really doing a very good job, um, you know, it, it usually leads to a tough conversation with the client that can often lead to a tough conversation uh, with the contractor or the employee. Yeah, it's like cheating in school. It's, exactly. It's not fair to anybody. Well, it gives the industry a bad name. You know, I feel like marketing is one of those industries that there are a lot of snake oil uh, salespeople. You know, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors, a lot of gurus that really don't know what they're talking about. 
and it makes it harder for people who are doing honest work to to get clients you know because there's always that degree of skepticism you have to overcome do you want to put anybody on blast are there any influencers who you've seen online that you don't agree with in terms of their marketing advice so I wouldn't say a specific influencer that I want to put on blast, but I would say companies like, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with like Yext, for example, but these kind of local SEO companies that kind of target the smaller businesses that don't really have the level of sophistication to know what they should be doing. And, you know, they'll basically just mark up very rudimentary tactics to the tune of like 10 X of what it actually costs to execute and not really do a whole lot outside of, maybe build some directory citations and some sketchy backlinks to kind of get someone a keyword position that then doesn't really require much onward or ongoing maintenance to maintain, but yet they're charging them kind of a retainer as if they're doing ongoing work. So we had just recently kind of taken over um, marketing for one of our new uh, acquisition offices. And I mean, they had one of these groups, I forget the name, but, you know, very similar model to Yext where, you know, they just built 60 directory citations and a dozen backlinks two years ago, got the positions they wanted to get. And then we're just charging these people $500 a month just to maintain the positions. And as soon as we go our separate ways, of course, they disavow all those links and remove all the citations to, you know, essentially penalize the customer for leaving, which, I mean, in my opinion, that's the kind of marketing that kind of makes it hard for the rest of us. What is, what would you say for a marketer is one is like the highest return on investment skill set to build where maybe you could start a business in it or, um, do contracting. What, what is like the most valuable skill set to build? So overall, I would probably say search engine optimization. I would put a caveat on that, that, I mean, it's getting harder to succeed with SEO and like the returns are diminishing. So I don't know if that's necessarily going to be true five years from now. Um, looking to the future, I would say learning media production, you know, how to use a camera, how to do post-production, how to do a podcast like this one. Um, it seems like search is kind of shifting into the direction of communities. So being able to have a presence in those communities requires being able to create content that people want to consume that's not necessarily just a blog post that's optimized for search. So for paid content content versus organic content, which how how do you decide when to promote content that you're creating versus just try, try to let it go organically? So I would say you have to almost win organically before you should chase something on the paid side. I mean, my personal perspective is if you have a cornerstone piece of content or kind of like a conversion path that's really driving a lot of value for you, you know, you have this one piece of content that's, you know, driving 30% of your form submissions, it's not going to hurt you to run Google AdWords against that or, or kind of to, to increase the visibility there. Um, personally, in my client work, I've had a lot better luck with... Um, Google LSA. So I don't know if you're familiar with like the local service ads. It's something that they don't really promote very well. But if you're kind of coming into a client with, you know, a low budget and high expectations, like you don't really have the luxury of figuring it out organically and you want to create impact day one. Uh, Google has been running these new, you know, local service ads only for certain industries, but that 
essentially, you know, they take all of their first party data and they create the ad for you and just serve it to the relevant audience. And you're just basically paying per lead. I've seen people waste a lot of money with PPC, you know, just trying to throw things at the wall that they didn't have to waste that money if they would have just had kind of the organic foothold that they were, you know, looking through that lens before they started spending money. Yeah. So viewing paid as kind of a boost to organic performance versus a supplement or, or a compliment. Agreed. I mean, I've, I've had projects in the past where it was kind of the leading strategy. So like, I think if you have like a lifestyle brand or e-commerce product, that's just like, you know, low cost and like, you know, a lot of, it's just an interesting product, I guess, if you will, like paid ads, maybe not such a bad idea. Um, I worked with a company that they do this uh, really interesting, like aesthetically pleasing bike stand for photography. So basically it's like a transparent bike stand that makes the bike look like it's, um, standing up without leaning on anything. And so like at the price point, like that product, you know, they did really well with social ads and a little bit of um, PPC just because it was like, you know, all they needed to do was just spread awareness about the product because it was kind of proprietary and it was interesting enough with a low enough price point that people would convert immediately without needing multiple touch points. But yeah, for the most part, I would say it's kind of a strategy you would only use after you have a good idea of what's working organically. Yeah. I'm, I'm fascinated with the difference in marketing between a B2B product or service and uh, impulse purchase on Facebook. I think that the marketing is completely different. But, Absolutely. But there are still some ground truths, which is that you have to showcase the value to the consumer, speak from their perspective. You have to know what their you know challenges, core motivations are. But then everything around the execution is completely different. You're you're bidding in a totally different way. Where you in for an uh, for for an impulsive purchase, you're you're just bidding to get somebody to convert right away. Versus in a B two B product, you're just trying to get in front of them several times, and you know hope that turns into a, some sort of a form submission or something like that. Um, yeah. Do you do you have any insight on on some of the other differences between? a B2C and a B2B marketing org? Yeah, I would say it all boils down to the sales cycle. You know, if you're looking at like B2C, you can have a longer sales cycle product just depending on the price point and kind of the resistance that you have to overcome. You know, you see a lot of these kind of like influencer products and kind of like e-commerce products that are almost built for that kind of like single feed ad conversion model. And then you have kind of like the world of SaaS where, you know, you could spend a year, you know, just trying to throw touch points at a customer before they, they would convert. Um, my current company, I mean, we live in a very long sales cycle world. So obviously we focus more on cultivating brand awareness first and then, you know, seeing where we're tracking and then kind of supplementing that tracking with some paid strategies. But I would say, you know, overall, you just kind of have to look at like how painful is the process of, of buying this product for the customer. And that, that can kind of determine usually the length, it, or I guess it usually correlates with the length of the sales cycle and kind of the approach that you should take. So in our previous call, you mentioned something about keyword stuffing. You use some interesting terminologies. I want to ask about that. What What is keyword stuffing? So on a very high level, uh, keyword stuffing is something that you should not do. It is a practice of over-optimizing content for a keyword of focus or a few keywords of focus, uh, basically just using the word that you want to rank a bunch of times in the content in hopes that you'll win a competitive position in the SERPs. 
What's an example? Can you give an example? So, I mean, when I started my power washing business and we were optimizing locally, I mean, we were in West Texas, right? So there wasn't a lot of competition. This was kind of before Google really advanced their algorithm to the point of being able to identify some of these more gray hat tactics as well. And I mean, I remember like when I wrote the homepage copy for this website, I'm just looking at, you know, a thesaurus essentially, like how many different ways can I say power washing? How many different ways can I say, you know, commercial vent hood cleaning or, you know, apartment cleaning. And, you know, I basically built the content around the keywords and it worked. I mean, we literally got to the number one position for almost every commercially viable keyword that we would want locally, but that same strategy does not work today. So now it's really more about looking through the lens of what's already working, enhancing that and really focusing on user experience. Because if you don't have those on-site signals, you're not going to be able to rank anything. And if you're writing content around keywords, it's not, the user's not going to like that content. There's no substance. What about polarizing content? Do people respond better to polarizing content? Should businesses create that kind of content or should corporations typically stick to a neutral position? I'd say it depends on the business. Right. So if you have an audience that kind of leans in one direction of kind of liking that and you don't really care about the people that you're going to turn off by doing something like that, it's a smart play. I would say for a business like ours, which I mean, we're kind of broad stroke appeal is at the core of success for us. Like we stay away from anything polarizing uh, corporately. But I mean, in certain lifestyle brands, I mean, it, it could be a huge competitive advantage if you kind of lean into the right cause or the right controversy. Like Nike. Yeah, I mean, you got to take a stand, you know, and whether whether or not you're kind of leaning into controversy, I think having something that you stand for and putting that stake in the ground is going to create that emotional connection that you need to cultivate customer loyalty. So, I mean, if you if you take like, like cause based marketing and really run with it, I mean, you're going to alienate people that are on the other side of that cause. But I mean, you're going to be much more likely to end up with more loyal customers on the right side of the cause than you would if you just took a super neutral approach that you know what that made me think of is an ethical question which is is marketing manipulating people and why or why not i would say it can i mean psychology plays a, a big role in success and marketing behavioral economics you know also plays a, a pretty big role so i mean to some degree your objective is to compel people to do something that maybe they would not be compelled to do um, had you not interface with them, you know, but I think depending on what you're selling and whether or not it legitimately adds value, that's where I would basically determine whether or not it was unethical or, you know, kind of like a, like a bad area to play. Like, I mean, if you're, if you're doing marketing to trick people into buying a course that is going to add no value to their life, that's probably the scummiest kind of marketing that you can do. Um, same thing with these kind of like crypto rug pulls, you know, I feel like that's like the bottom feeders of marketing. But I mean, if you're doing, if you're using psychological tactics to get people to consider a product that's actually legitimately going to add value to their life, I think it's kind of a net positive. Yeah, I think that's part of the free market is there's an understood level of persuasion that is acceptable and if the persuasion is unmatched with a with a value exchange then it's unethical 
but if they're exactly it, but they're but it, yeah it's it's like we're all open to being sold maybe maybe we don't like to be sold in certain circumstances for example in my neighborhood there's a no soliciting sign so people don't sell door to door but if i go online it's it's open season people can you know put ads up be in the social feeds that i'm in and it's just understood as like part of the world that we live in um, i agree yeah it's interesting i mean i think it's your your motivation right is what determines whether or not it's ethical like if your motivation is to rip people off and not add value then it doesn't matter what you're selling or how you're selling it it's you shouldn't be doing it or from an ethical perspective you shouldn't be doing it it's similar to sales where you have to believe in the product or service that you're selling it it doesn't work if you don't believe in it 100% and i mean i would say that's kind of the lens through which i decide whether or not i want to take on a consulting client is whether or not i believe in the product because I mean, I've worked for companies, you know, earlier in my career where I just didn't really get it or, you know, didn't really feel it. And it just, it always felt cheap, you know? And, and the irony is like a lot of times marketing yourself as a marketing consultant, you're kind of swimming in the sea of those people. So that's again, kind of to my previous comment, the thing that you have to overcome is that, you know, a lot of these people are trying to manipulate other people psychologically, you know, obviously as a business owner, I want to have more leads. I want to have more revenue. So that's a very strong emotional pull that, you know, can be used for good or can be used for evil. Yeah, you mentioned there's there's a lot of marketing consultants. I have to agree. I would love to be one, but I feel like it's going to be tough to stand out because there are just so many and there's not that many different disciplines in marketing. There's maybe like five to ten major areas, I feel like. And that's that's not that many and it and you can learn it online you can learn most of marketing with free courses so there's a lot of marketing consultants what do you recommend to stand out in today's marketplace as a consultant so i would say it's really important to specialize um i've kind of like contradicted my own advice here because i've gone i've worked in a lot of different industries and like a lot of different applications but whether it's just kind of specializing in that one practice, you know, in my case, probably my strongest competency is search engine optimization. Um, but, but also looking at, you know, what industry do I really want to serve? And then just kind of going full tilt into that industry and that specialization rather than just trying to be kind of the jack of all trades kind of marketer. Yeah, I, I agree. That's definitely, especially in a, uh, a tight economy, you know, being a generalist is not, is not going to serve as well in, in my opinion as having 100%. a really hard skill. Yeah. No, you're right. And I mean, like, you know, you, you have to know something well enough to know the specific pain points of the person that you're trying to work with, you know, and that's very different in different industries. It's very different in different disciplines. So, I mean, if you're a generalist, yeah, you can kind of say some buzzwords and, you know, you might get a few clients here or there that are, you know, not really privy to what they should be knowing. But I mean, at the end of the day, if you're looking for long-term success as a marketing consultant or, you know, the ability to stand on your own and sustain it, I mean, you've really got to kind of put your stake in the ground again, you know, to where you're just saying, I focus on this kind of business and I help them with this kind of practice. So if if I'm starting a marketing consulting business for myself and I want to take on an extra project, what's the best target customer for me to go for? 
Would it be a larger medium or maybe a medium sized enterprise that I can, you know, that, that won't feel it as much, uh, in terms of the cost or mom and pop where it'll probably be a lot easier to sell, but there's a lot less mart profit margin. That's a great question. Um, so in my experience, it would be tough to land those mid-market companies out the gate if you have no resume and no case studies. But I mean, if you can get that kind of client when you first start, I would 100% say go that direction. Um, to your point, they're not as sensitive on the spend. They're more of a long game kind of approach, right? So they're going to be willing to invest what it takes to get the results that kind of keep you around. Um, but I mean, most people starting into this industry, I mean, they're facing a lot of um, apprehension, oftentimes like a lot of clients that have been burned in the past. So, I mean, you're almost limited to consulting in the small business realm until you really have a big win that you can kind of hang your hat on. Uh, I mean, some people even need to take it one step beyond that and actually offer, you know, their services kind of for free or, you know, just payment on performance kind of model to, to get their foot in the door and then I think, again, it's really important to just kind of build your brag book and, and build your case studies. And those tend to be the keys that kind of open the doors to the the, cl the clients that you really want to work with. What what advice do you have for marketing yourself to as a consultant? What tactics would you use? What kind of content would you create? So ironically, even though my strongest skills are in the digital realm, my best luck with finding clients has been kind of more traditional, like networking style marketing, I would say, you know, if you can get involved in a cause where there's executive leaders and business owners also involved in that cause, that's probably the best return of investment on your time. Um, but, you know, if you, if you don't have that available or you can't, you know, figure out what that cause is, I would say going to industry events and just learning, um, more than selling, right? Just going there with a the curious approach. You can do the same thing on LinkedIn, right? Joining industry groups and kind of playing more of the long game of saying, I want to come in here. I'm focusing on your industry. To do that, I need to learn your industry. So can I be a fly on the wall? And then, you know, naturally through those relationships, you'll eventually start getting questions coming in as far as, you know, what do you do? Or, hey, you do, you're a marketing guy. Could you give me some insight on this? And then, you know, Typically, in my experience, that's kind of the way that the best consulting engagements kind of materialize. So why did you become an entrepreneur? We kind of talked about it earlier, but why, why, did, you, why did you decide to do it? So yeah, to, to the point of my comment earlier, I mean, it's kind of forced into it. I mean, it's not like I was forced into it, but like my, my job prospects weren't great out of college. So it was kind of like, I'm young, you know, what do I have to lose? I still have a little bit of a safety net. If I fall on my face, there's no family involved. Why not? But, you know, now having done it, I, I wouldn't do it any other way. I mean, even if I graduated into a great economy, knowing what I know now, I would still have that hunger for entrepreneurship because there's just so much, so much freedom and just kind of ability to kind of um, choose your own adventure in that path compared to the corporate path. I mean, I'm fortunate in my job that I have a lot of leeway and we're, we're much more of an entrepreneurial organization than most people are size but i mean it's still like there's a lot more complexity and a lot less agility in the corporate world so like in past engagements i've missed opportunities because there's just multiple layers of stakeholders that you have to get on board before you can chase something that 
if you're an entrepreneur, you're basically the end all authority to say, let's do it. So at what point as an entrepreneur would you hire some an employee? That's another great question. I think, I mean, obviously you have to have the have the money to sustain it. And I mean, that depends on, you know, what you're trying to hire. I've worked with smaller agencies doing white label work where they'll bring on kind of like a virtual assistant from overseas that's only costing them a couple hundred bucks a month. But it seems to be no matter what your situation is, the time to hire is when you find yourself having to turn down business because you're bogged down with administrative work. So I'd say kind of max it out to the point that you're literally having to say no to people before you would ever want to think about, you know, bringing someone on. And then when you're bringing someone on, really think about what is the thing that I am the least effective at or is taking the most of my time and adding the least amount of value or taking the most of my time and would be the cheapest thing to outsource. Do you think that um, the corporate world is in a, on a trajectory to be much more accepting of side projects uh, and entrepreneurial employees in the future? I think it depends on the industry. Um, for my employer, I kind of made it like a contingency on working there. I mean, I already had all this going on that I, I didn't want to stop doing it. So we, we kind of agreed that I could continue to do it um, as long as I wasn't doing it for competitors. Um, I think that's kind of rare in my industry and other industries that are a little uh, more old school in their mindset. I would say, you know, in marketing specifically, like if you're working for an agency, I would be surprised if many agencies are cool with the the side work thing because it's kind of cannibalizing clients that they could have. But I mean, I know quite a few people who work in corporate jobs that their employer is fine with them doing side work as long as it isn't done during work hours or isn't, you know, directly competing with the work that they're doing for the corporate employer. Yeah, I feel like our culture is changing. For example, um, there's there's this thing I heard recently, which is stop making the happy hours after work. We want to see our families make it at like 2 p.m., 2, 3 p.m., where you can just take the second half of the day off and then you could still be home and that everybody kind of wins. I mean, I guess the, the company gets a couple less hours of productivity, but for the employee, it's a big win. So that's, that's kind of what I'm sourcing for that, that trajectory that I see. Well, and if you look at productivity, I mean, I think there's kind of an even bigger revelation and, you know, you can force people to be in the office and, you know, fit the traditional nine to five schedule, but you, you can't really force them to be productive. And I've looked at a couple of studies on this that, that seem to agree that, I mean, productivity is pretty much capped at, you know, four or five good hours a day for most people. So, I mean, yeah, you can make them sit in the desk for that remaining, you know, three to four hours, but I mean, are you really getting any more incremental value out of them? I think in a lot of cases, the answer is probably no. Um, so I've, I've found that employers that kind of embrace that and move to like a four day work week or more flexible scheduling or, you know, you know, taking happy hour during the day, they don't tend to see a drop off in productivity. They just see an uptick in retention. So on that note, what are some, what are some, le uh, sorry, what is some leadership or management advice that you have? So my biggest thing, and I think this came from the, the blue collar experiences, never ask someone to do something that you wouldn't be willing to do yourself. 
um, I would add to that, never ask someone to do something that they don't think that you have the ability to do yourself um, as effectively as they can, right? I mean, a lot, a lot more important in kind of a small business where your employees are kind of handing off the invoices to the customer and they may get a little disgruntled on seeing what you make versus what they're making. But, you know, even in day-to-day corporate marketing, I mean, I have a girl on my team that's incredible at social media. She's uh, thinking of great ideas, putting content out there, but every now and then we got to eat our vegetables, do some community building and do some of the more tedious kind of low-level administrative tasks that aren't really fun, but are really a crucial component of success. And, you know, rather than just tell her, you know, I've been doing this for long enough to know that this works, you need to do this because I'm your boss. You know, I'm not afraid to roll up my sleeves and do it with her. And I think that has been really paramount to getting, keeping her motivated because it's never been one of those, I'm telling you to do something that I think I'm too good for. It's, I'm telling you to do something that I know we need to do that I'm not above doing myself. I would add to that, that you want to give people as much autonomy, probably even more autonomy than you're comfortable with, you know, and essentially give them that trust. You've got to keep an eye on them because some people are going to violate that trust, but micromanagement is never going to get you anywhere because it kind of hampers your ability to scale. You, know, you have to have people just running at maximum capacity to, to really maximize your ability to scale. And you can't do that if you're constantly looking over people's shoulders. I mean, you're wasting their time and you're wasting their time. So what analytics do you use in your business and in your personal life? So analytics plays a really big role in my business life. Um, I would say, you know, again, from ideation all the way to performance measurement, I mean, we're looking at numbers, uh, as many numbers as we can, right? So, I mean, I don't know if I would call keyword research tools necessarily analytics, but essentially you're leveraging big data to figure out, you know, what the market wants, what the market's searching for. Once you actually have something in play, whether you're on social platform, on the web, even some traditional channels you could measure a little bit, you want to take a look at whatever you can kind of sink your teeth into to say, you know, are we creating impact and are we moving in the right direction? Um, in my personal life, I, I wouldn't say that I use analytics too much, but I would say, you know, with the uh, trying to get my health insurance discount, I'm doing a biometric screening and uh, kind of tracking some, some health stats uh, from time to time. Um, personal consulting, obviously using it in a similar way to what I do in my corporate job. I find financial analytics to be the most helpful for me. I've uh, the mint finance app and it'll tell me each month, like how my spending compares to other people, um, similar to me. And so it's really interesting, uh, the, the level of perspective you can get from some of these finance apps. That is interesting. And I could see that being motivational. You know, it's kind of gamifies it almost rather than just say, here's the principles. You should just take our word for it. You're actually looking at what other people are doing and kind of, in a way, kind of leveraging, you know, behavioral economics, kind of that herd mentality. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's very interesting. Yeah, it, it is gamified and it makes it much more rewarding to save money. Absolutely. I, I guess to your point on that, I've, I have seen a similar success with like Duolingo. So I've been trying to teach myself Spanish. And Duolingo kind of has a competitive element to it, right? Where you can have like kind of a group of friends that's all on it and it will kind of compare you or, you know, how, how often are you practicing compared to them? How are you doing on your assessments compared to them? And uh, yeah, so I say my personal life, that's been motivational. 
Final question, how will AI evolve in marketing? I think AI will evolve marketing. So, I mean, beyond it evolving within marketing, I think it's going to completely change the game in the next five to 10 years. I mean, right now we're seeing the beginnings of, of what the future will be with kind of AI generated content, kind of dynamic content models, you know, looking at the Salesforce ecosystem and the ability to essentially serve a custom tailored experience to a customer based on what you know about them in your customer relationship management database. Um, but I would anticipate that, you know, in the future, we're going to see a lot of kind of like entry-level marketing jobs be replaced by AI. What do you think about Dolly? Dolly, I'm not familiar. It's this AI that can create images based on words that you input and it's really good at it. Really? Yeah. Uh, D-A-L-L-E is how it's spelled. It's like a play on Wally and the artist Dolly. Um, and, uh, it is quite interesting. Dolly two. Um, it's, uh, basically it just uses AI to understand how to craft images with different subjects and it makes it look like a photo, like a rendered photo uh, that's very interesting yeah it's yeah and and it can produce like you could say you could say anything like you could say like uh a minivan on 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 mars and it would like do it <laughs> and it wow. and it, it can not just do one it can do it can print out like a hundred immediately of different really? versions of it yeah and so th- it's changing creative uh, the the cr- creation process for art in, I guess, advertising even. Um, I think that's going to be a really interesting uh, new layer uh, for, for images in ads. It, it'll be like having AI-generated art. Yeah, I would say, I mean, that, that kind of reminds me of, I've seen some of this new technology coming out that can do the same thing with like animated explainer videos. Mm. Where essentially, like, you know, you used to kind of have the stock footage approach where, yeah, they'd have all the scenes kind of baked out and you could just piece them together. But, you know, you're starting to see people start to play with the idea of give it the concept, give it the scenes, and it will just generate the content for you. And I think, you know, as machine learning gets more advanced, we may see a world in the not too distant future where you can just give it a topic, you know, and it's basically going to start scouring or, or kind of crawling the internet for, you know, the same kind of data that a tool like Surfer SEO would would gather and then use that algorithmically to plan and generate content. Yeah. That's really exciting. Absolutely. And probably for some a little scary. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm very interested to see what happens. I'm sure we'll both, you know, be be at the cutting edge of these new developments. So I'd love to have you on again in the, in the coming years. Would love to join. Alrighty. Cool. Well, thank you, Michael, for joining. It's been a pleasure to have you. Uh, thanks for the great conversation. Alex, likewise. I appreciate it. Awesome. And thanks everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon.